All right, yell some answers out to this statement. God is... Love. Okay. What he said? Great. Unfathomable. Good. I have to say that slowly. Omniscient. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, depending on what's going on in your life, you probably have all kinds of different uh, words associated with God. I, as a gardener, have been walking through uh, a very fruitful garden lately. And one of the overwhelming things that's been coming to me all week is that God is a God of abundance. Uh, one psalm, in fact, metaphorically speaking, talks about God visiting the earth. And wherever his footsteps lie, it says it overflows with fatness. That's a metaphor for life. And just like life just flows out of God. God's uh, creation contains an abundance of variety, doesn't it? Colors and species of plants and animals, amazing minerals, oceans, deserts, rivers, and mountains. How about even the fact that God exists as Trinity? Like, that's so over the top. It couldn't be just one person in the Godhead. Like, it had to be three. A perpetual, overflowing love relationship. Just His nature is a nature of abundance. And throughout Scripture, we see that God's intent for you and me and every created human being is that we are made in His image. And His intent is for us to be fruitful. To be abundant. Blessed. Blessed in order to be a blessing to other people. Blessed or fruitful so that we can then uh, reflect God's blessing to others. Our scripture reading that Chris just read uh, was from Psalm 1. And it speaks of the wise person who is, who is blessed because they don't go down the path of wickedness. Instead, this person in Psalm 1 delights in the law, which I know sounds like the rules part of the Bible, but actually the law is the entire story of God. So the person in Psalm 1 that is fruitful and healthy delights in the story of God. And it's like they're a tree planted next to this perpetual life-giving stream. And what happens? They bear fruit. Bearing fruit. Being blessed. To be blessed or fruitful in a biblical or a theological sense doesn't mean you'll necessarily have lots of stuff. You may never. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to be famous. But what it means is that blessedness is when God is at work in you, and God is at work through you. Isn't that great? Have you ever had the sense that God is really at work in you? And sometimes it's uncomfortable, it's like He's really messing with something here, but... Or maybe you got the sense that God is at work through you, and, and some job that you're doing, God is at work through you in some relationship you're in, and I, I don't know about you, but for me, I've never, I never feel more alive than when I sense God at work in me and through me. No amount of stuff or fame really stacks up to knowing that God is working in me and through me. That's blessing. Now consider this. Jesus came proclaiming an age of blessing. He preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and trust in this good news. He performed works of the kingdom, freeing people from bondage to sin and bondage to illness, even raising some from the dead. Last week, we began Jesus' teachings in the parables of Matthew 13. We looked in some depth at the first 17 verses. 
And we discovered something about that parable, and actually all parables. The main point of a parable that Jesus is teaching is to get us to respond. It's not primarily to teach you new things about God. It's to get you to respond. And one of the things we saw in those first 17 verses is Jesus begging the question, Are you listening? Are you really listening? Now this evening we're going to revisit that parable and we're going to focus on its interpretation in verses 18 through 23. And just, you know me, I'm all about context. So what we're going to do is read verses 1 through 9 and then 18 through 23. I want to invite you to stand as we read that out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, or look, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up. But because they had no depth of soil, and when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil, and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The person who has ears to hear, listen. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, well, this is the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Lord, as we explore this parable, I pray uh, that you wouldn't let us just dissect it and leave it there to look at. I pray that it would have its desired effect on us. That we would long to be people who are fruitful, long to be people whose hearts are fertile soil for your word. We pray these things because we believe you are the only one who makes that possible in us. Help us to be receptive. Amen. You may be seated. A parable. Primary purpose to get us to respond, not just to learn stuff. If someone comes up to you and has a very difficult thing to say to you, 
maybe something that you might even get defensive about, it might be a little offensive, you're probably going to shut off your mind. You're going to just build up your wall and, and not fully take it in. Parables, on the other hand, are stories that are intended to grab us, to, to get our attention. They have a way of disarming us until we figure out the point of the parable. Parables have a way of delivering a hard message, a revealing message, and then they ask us to respond to that. Now, one of the things we talked about last week is that most of Jesus' parables, if not all, are not to be interpreted with the strictest uh, forms of analogy. Real strict, especially uh, Greek analogy, has uh, almost every little detail in a story has an esoteric meaning that may have nothing to do with the present context. But parables aren't like that, at least Jesus's. Um, What the details in the story are trying to do are help you and I identify with the story so that we can ask ourselves, where are we in this? And then respond. So let's take a look at what parts of the story are revealed. First of all, there's a sower, this sower. We don't know who it is. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us the sower's name. But as we move through this and we look at context, I'm just going to tell you, I I come out where the sower is the father. Okay, so you plug that away. Then there's the seed. What is this seed that the sower is sowing? How would Jesus' original audience on that shoreline interpret what he's saying? I mean, if parables are supposed to be these stories that draw you in, then they should make obvious sense to people, at least the story or the details. So what is this seed? Now, I love this because this really shows uh, Jesus' genius as a teacher. Uh, Sometimes we hold Jesus out as this... The Son of God who's this so different and, and away from us that you've got to see the genius in how he presents things to people. So first of all, rabbis were known as sowers of seed. And the seed they sowed to their disciples was the law. The law. And again, as I said earlier in the message, the law, when they're talking about the law in this context, they're not just talking about the Ten Commandments, and they're not just talking about Torah the first five books of the Bible. But the law by the first century came to mean the entire Old Testament put together. The entire story of God's gracious, redeeming acts time and time again to the people of God. So, one meaning of the seed that those people would have understood is the sower is sowing the Word of God or the story of God. And the story complete with all those prophecies pointing to a day when God would come and rescue His people. All right? That's one level. Second, seed came to be associated with the remnant of Israel. So Israel kind of understood themselves, many even in the first century, as still being in some kind of exile, still being punished for all that idolatry because Rome was in control. They really, you know, they could kind of worship at the temple, but they didn't, they weren't a sovereign nation. And they still considered themselves waiting on the edge of their proverbial seats for, for God to come and rescue them. So seed was this buzzword that comes out of the end of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 55, when the God, the sower, would come uh, draw or, or, or raise up a new people of God. Okay? So seed has this double meaning. God's story and God's promise to raise up a new people, bring them out of exile. Now watch Jesus' genius. Through this proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom in chapter 4, 
teaching about the ethics of the kingdom in Matthew's sermon on the or Jesus' sermon on the mount, Matthew five, six, and seven. Jesus doing the deeds of the kingdom in chapters eight and nine. Jesus calling his disciples to then join him in those works in chapters nine and or ten and eleven. Jesus is saying, and all of that, guess what? The time you've been waiting for is arrived in my person, in my ministry. The seeds are starting to grow. It's the moment you've been waiting for. God is truly sowing the seeds of the kingdom. He's forming a new people. And the seed, or the point of that message, is Jesus. He's saying, guess what? I know I'm not what you expected, but I've got good news. I am the point. I am the way, I'm calling a new people to myself. I am the seed. Which brings us to the only part of the parable that we're really meant to identify with. I mean, if the sower is somebody that's not you and me, and the seed is Jesus and the good news of the kingdom, that leaves the only variable being the soil. Four types of soil. And as we're going to see, the four soils describe four different dispositions. You know that word, how predisposed, how we, how we uh, perceive things, how we react to things. You, you might say somebody has a real mild-mannered disposition. That means they're chill, right? Or somebody's a really uptight disposition or a really critical disposition. And these soils show us the condition of our hearts. That's really what they're made to do. They're to be four mirrors They're beginning us to see, where am I at on this spectrum? Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. Now, I don't know if you caught that. The person described in that first soil, even though the seed gets snatched up, is still blessed. Blessed are you whose ears hear. Blessed are you whose eyes see. Jesus said that right before in chapter, uh, I mean in verse 16 and 17. We're starting in in verse 18 here. So this person has listened. They have heard. They've received the, the, the seed into their heart. They have been shown grace. But why aren't they fruitful? What prevented the seed from taking hold in their life? Jesus tells us that they didn't understand. In the, in the Greek behind our word for understand, it doesn't mean intellectual understanding. So I want, to, I want to drive that home for you right now. It doesn't mean that you have to be a certain level of intellect to receive the seed, to receive Jesus. You don't have to have a university degree. In fact, doesn't Jesus oftentimes say, unless you become as a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? So this has nothing to do with mental capacity. Okay? What this is talking about, look at the word understand even in English. To stand under. This has to do with the person who receives the word but doesn't make it authoritative in their life. They're willing to listen, but not to stand under its authority. It's flat-out choice to not obey. You know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he teaches what I think is the single most transformative single sermon that we have of his in all of the Bible. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, glorious. Memorize it. I'm telling you, it's life-changing. But at the end of that, he's spoken all of these amazing things, 
But he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot of people out there, Jesus is saying, who are going to call me Lord. Oh yeah, I think Jesus is Lord. I call you Lord, Lord. I go to church, I worship. He says, don't call me Lord, Lord, unless you do the will of the Father who sent me. And he gives us this simile. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to the wise man who built his house on the rock. You know, the, the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they slammed against the house. But it did not fall, for it had been built on the rock. That means they obeyed Jesus' teachings. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, who receives the seed, in other words, and does not let it affect their lives, that may be compared to the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Same scenario. The rain falls, the floods come, the wind blows and slams against its house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Soil number one loves a good sermon, but they go away unchanged. If they're challenged too much, they might just drop out of church or maybe go look for one where they're not challenged. And what, I, being in my position, I know a lot of people like that personally. Now, Scripture is clear that the evil one is on the prowl. And let's just be honest. Satan, the evil one, whatever you want to call him, he doesn't really care about you. <laughs> You're not that big a deal. What he cares about is hurting God, his number one enemy. And it just so happens that God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And so if there is room in our hearts for the evil one to come snatch up the life-giving word of God, that breaks God's heart. That's why the evil one is after you and me. For those of you who even take baby steps toward Jesus, who, who, who are at least your heart's open to obeying, oh man, you are on the victorious side. Jesus has defeated the evil one. When he calls you his, his person, when you're adopted into his family through faith in Jesus, he, the evil one can't touch you, cannot take that word out of your heart. It's when we refuse Jesus, when we refuse God, when we refuse to obey, that's when we leave ourselves open. Soil number two. Other seed fell on the rocky soil, and it's like the person who listens and joyously receives the seed of the gospel in their hearts. Oh man, they're on fire. I mean, that's what sometimes we say in church. That person's on fire for Jesus. Um, um, they make, make changes in their lives. I remember that uh, first... Few, a few years of really being on fire for Jesus. And I, I mean, all kinds of crazy changes like, um, oh, I quit smoking. I, just, I, I didn't even think that was like this, the hugest sin in the world. I thought, I just want to be so different for Jesus. And so, you know, I, I don't, that might shock you. Yeah, I used to smoke. But, um, it, you know, on fire for Jesus. And uh, I used to, you know, just sing all these, it just come to my, bubble up out of my person. I would sing all these songs. I, I remember being in my SCBA because I was on this chemical and oil spill response team. And I would fog up my mask all the time uh, because I'm singing all these worship songs from church. I mean, you, you know what I mean? There's that joyous conversion and I'm on fire for Jesus. They get involved, they serve, but they have no roots. You know, after a while, if you've been following Jesus a while, you know, it's kind of hard work. Like, oh, that's why they say to read your Bible and to pray 
and to get into community. Oh, that's why it's important to serve others. and Because it helps your roots go deeper. Otherwise, your faith is just based on how you feel at the moment. And that's the person who rises up fast, but then flashes out very quickly. Their faith is external. But then the new shininess of the gospel loses its luster. And this passage describes two situations that causes a person of shallow roots to stumble. The first is the Greek, philipseos. Say that just for fun because you're falling asleep. Philipseos. Yeah, good enough. It means things like trouble, pressure, affliction. This is the person who is, I'm all in for Jesus when life is good. But then maybe economic hardship happens or illness or something more enticing like a summer day in Bellingham. And it confronts them and their faith shrivels. They have no grounding. They've become fans of Jesus, but not disciples. Kind of like Mariner fans. Woo, they're winning! I'll go to a game maybe. Okay. The second enemy of the unrooted person is persecution. Again, it's easy to proclaim Jesus as long as things are going really well for you. Uh, As long as it doesn't make you unpopular or get you in trouble. Jesus tells us that those who follow him, though, are going to be hated. They will be persecuted. They will have conflict in a world that is organized around other gods besides him. So the one with shallow roots will change loyalties like a chameleon to kind of suit their purposes. How are your roots? Are you growing? Are you becoming more fruitful? I, I think one of the things that I take away from this, I'm it's not in my notes or anything, is that it's not so much about how you start with following Jesus. It's about putting one foot down in front of the other. And I've gone through lots of different cycles in following Christ. And some of you walked longer than I have in that. And you know this to be true. That is, you could have the best year following Jesus... Sell all your possessions, be on fire, and then you've still got to follow him the next year, and the next day, and the next week. Uh, It's not so much about what you did last week or how you started. It's about how we continue and follow. Um, And sometimes those spiritual disciplines, we call them, of prayer and community and Bible study, those kind of things, it's like putting stuff into an account. Because you know we go through dry times and we can kind of draw on that account. But if you, if you stop putting things in the account, you'll find, oh my gosh, I've shriveled up like I don't even desire Christ anymore. I don't, his people really tick me off. I don't want to be around the church anymore. And then you wonder where that comes from. It's because it's, it's a relationship that Jesus has invited us into, not, uh, not a contract. This third soil is infested with weeds. This soil receives the seed. Their roots might go fairly deep. These might be people we look up to in church. They may have been around a while. They might seem wise and put together. None of us are put together, by the way, so if you think that about anyone, not true. (laughs) They have endured trials in life, and they're consistent. I mean, these are the people we might be really looking up to. Uh, They're blessed. And they bless others. And sometimes this blessing comes in the form of wealth. And Maybe these people are wise and dedicated, both profitable character traits. 
And this is important that this soil is not condemning wealth. In fact, John Chrysostom, the great 5th century preacher, often known for his just railing against the wealthy and how they're cheating the poor, he even writes, wealth is not called evil here in, in, in um, terms of this passage. It is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth that is the problem. And I find, as I read this, such a fine line between functioning wisely in the world and sinning. You, you can't escape your context. We live in Bellingham, right? We live in the 21st century. Um, we have to function within a certain economic system. But be careful, because weeds are so subtle. You know, in some cultures, generations of family live together. You take care of each other until you pass away. If you lose a job, you get sick, you've got a built-in safety net right there. Western culture, for the most part, is not like that. So, you know, you might consider, it's loving for me to have some kind of life insurance. Because in our system, if I die, my family's strapped with a whole bunch of stuff that, they, that will crush them. Financial debt, maybe. Um, it's wise in our culture to save something for retirement because you can't really count on the system that we have to just take care of us, right? Now here's the question that this soil raises. How much is enough? What is the difference between wisdom and excess? And I'm not going to give you a benchmark. I think that would be unwise. I think we each need to figure out in our context, with our family situation, with our greater community situation, we need to check our hearts. And that's more work than just some black and white preaching. But I think that that's the wisest step here. Jesus doesn't give us a black and white. It's a question of the heart. And here's the question. Where am I placing my security? Where am I placing my security? You know, the salvation that the world offers is a salvation of insurance and planning. The American dream, in a nutshell, get comfortable and do everything you can to maintain it. Get comfortable. Do everything. That's the, isn't that the Allstate commercial or is it Progressive? I can't remember which one. You earned it. Now protect it. You know, it's like this whole... And that's salvation from the world's perspective. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus' way, is to be wise and generous. To live well. To lay our lives down for others. It is not evil to have wealth or to have a plan. In fact, it's pretty smart. Uh, pay attention, though, if your financial goals prevent you from doing the things that God is calling us to. Like being generous to others. Like tithing. It's a matter of the heart. And, and you and I know when we really dig in, and we don't like to think about this because we like to live in delusion, but when you really dig down... Oh, if I, am I resistant to this? Ding, 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 ding. That might be telling you something. But wealth, uh, in this passage, and I think in general, has a much broader meaning than just money and possessions. That, that was the easy thing to preach about. Uh, Wendell Berry wrote a wonderful book, many wonderful books, but Jaber Crow, I'm telling you, if you're looking for a summer read, there it is, Jaber Crow. Read it. Uh, Jaber Crow is a fictitious character in uh, the small town of uh, Port Williams, Kentucky. He is the town barber. And the book is set in the 1930s and goes all the way up into the 80s. It's his life story. 
As the town barber, Jaber has the inside scoop on the town gossip. He is well connected to the community. And one of the families very close to Jaber Crow's heart is the Keith family. Maddie Keith was his classmate in high school, and she was the love of his life for as long as she lived. Even though she married Troy, the school jock, soon after they graduated, Jaber loved her from afar. And Jaber was very fond of Maddie Keith's father, Athy Keith. Athy uh, was an old school farmer. He had great love and reverence for the land and for the animals that he farmed. He plowed his fields, even in the 40s and 50s, with a team of mules. He rotated his crops every year on the land and always left one part of the land alone every year, let it lie fallow, never went out for maximum profit. Athy was a man who had healthy rhythms. He worked hard, and he invested time in his family. He made a profit, but didn't ever make profit the point of his life. He was in touch with the rhythms of the seasons and the land, and he never bought or spent more on credit than he had collateral for. He lived within his means. He was wealthy in the healthiest sense of the word, and I would say he was fruitful. But when Maddie Keith married Troy, Troy began, began farming as well. And Troy was a young, hotshot modernist. He bought the first tractors to come to Port Williams, Kentucky. And he bought everything on credit. And his philosophy was borrow more, borrow more, borrow more. More fields, more tractors, more workers. Farm every square inch of the field. Never let it lie fallow. Work your workers so they can't stand anymore. His whole goal was to farm an empire from behind a desk. But the weeds of lusting after more and more choked him, killed his family. He was, in two words, perpetually overextended. Overextended by the cares of the world and deceitfulness of wealth. Do any of you identify at times with that word overextended? I feel it sometimes. Of course, we can get overextended in our finances, and Financial Peace University is coming up uh, here in the fall, so I know many of you are going to be taking that. We can get overextended in debt, which is the most common, but we can also get overextended in our fear of debt and hoarding what we have to the point where we're not generous, we don't share, and we don't enjoy the life that we have. It's like the rainy day fund, is, and the rainy day has never come. Soon the blessing of finances uh, can become a death sentence. We have no time for the gospel when we get choked. Of course, schedules can get overextended. You can get overextended at church, which is why we try not to program too many things. You can get overextended with our lust for recreation and overextended with work. That's an obvious one, but most of us need to check on that. I do. And for those of us with children, oh man, isn't it easy to get overextended with activities? And I, I, I sense this underlying anxiety in our culture, that uh, this fear that, oh, we've got to get our kids every opportunity that we can. We've got to get them experience everything they possibly can. And I just ask myself sometimes, really, is that more important than a stable base to work out of? 
You know, but does my kid need to try everything and to be the best at everything? We create this anxiety of shuffling about. Our schedules can choke us. And here's the deceitfulness is. We can be so busy doing a lot of great things for very well-meaning reasons and still fail to be fruitful. Are you overextended? Finally, we read about the good soil, the fruitful heart. This is the person who receives the seed, Jesus, and stands under his grace and authority. Notice the natural progression. First, listening to Jesus. Second, standing under what he actually says, giving him authority in our lives. And then, fruit is born as a natural next step. We don't produce fruit. We don't go out and try and just make it happen and then have faith. Fruit is born in the person of faith. And the fruit born in our lives, man, it can yield a big crop, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. We don't get to choose how much. That's up to God. So don't compare yourselves with other people. But being fruitful is a response to the seed. And the seed is Jesus. At this point, I think it's an important thing to say that this is primarily not a parable about failure. Uh, I've read, and I think it's completely wrong, that three quarters of the seed is lost, and only one quarter falls on healthy soil. There's nothing in this parable that gives us percentages like that. It says, uh, you know, there are four kinds of soil. But what Jesus is doing in this parable is, I think, inviting us to look in the mirror and say, where are you at? He's giving us, out of His grace, a warning instead of saying, this is how you are, and that's how you're going to stay. Sorry. I think that's really good news. It's a reality check. The point here is to take stock of where you're actually at. And I think if we're honest, and I'll just be honest, my heart always seems to be in flux. There's parts of me, categories of my life that I can identify with any of those soils at any given time. Maybe you recognize that you're becoming hardened to the word. Or maybe you're recognizing this feeling of fickleness, of rootlessness. You give up too quickly when the going gets hard. Or maybe you feel the weeds of the overextended life choking you, tugging at your heart. Is it too late? Is there anything we can do? Again, this is a warning from Jesus, not a lesson on tactics and techniques. It's not merely us deciding, he's right, uh, I'm going to change. Today, I'm just going to be different. Uh, I'm going to like put some weed killer on or something or get more soil if I'm rocky. Here's the bad news. If our hearts are sick, they're sick. Um, Sorry, you can't like put fertilizer on yourself. That's not what the parable lets us do. Like I said, it's not an analogy. It's not this thing you get to play with like that. In fact, Thomas Chalmers, who wrote in the early 19th century, wrote this. Listen, Listen to these words. We cannot choose what we love. But we always love what seems desirable to us. Thus we will only change when something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin in the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. That's like a harsh statement, but 
has a ring of truth to me. And he continues, And this is what the Spirit does in us. He makes us taste and see that the Lord is good. And thus we desire Jesus. And I think that what this parable does for me and the way I'm going to preach it is that it puts us right back to where Jesus started his whole teaching ministry. Are you feeling um, like you're one of like you're not the fruitful soil? Are you free to admit that in your heart? Hey, guess what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn the state of their heart, the state of the world, for they shall be comforted. You don't feel all that puffed up all of a sudden, not so self-righteous after this parable? That's the point. But guess what? Blessed are the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Hear the good news. You might not be able to change your heart, but Jesus can. And that's what we're invited to ask him, I think, at the end of this parable. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to be real with us, to give us true words and hard words. And I I thank you that you don't just leave us standing in the mirror stunned and depressed, but you offer us a gospel that says, I can change you, child. I didn't expect you to be perfect. I expected you to trust me. So Lord, help us to do that today, to trust you more. A, now seeing that we need forgiveness, help us to trust you that you do that. And that you are constantly working in our hearts, in our lives, to make us more receptive, more free, more obedient to you. Have your way with us, Lord. Amen.